Welcome to Lectio Continua, a podcast of Grace OPC in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. This is Lectio Continua Acts, episode 11. In the sermon today, we are considering Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. And this is in the body of Peter's Pentecost sermon. And in this particular section, he's dealing with a number of Old Testament passages and how they are fulfilled in the coming of Christ, his life, death, resurrection. In fact, he cites here 2 Samuel 7, the great Davidic covenant passage, Psalm 16, Psalm 132, and Psalm 89. And in this sermon, I spend a fair amount of time dealing with the relationship between the Old and New Testaments, particularly and especially as the Old Testament foreshadows the coming of Christ and the New Testament reveals and fulfills those Old Testament types, shadows, and prophecies. Now, this is a significant uh, aspect of biblical literature and biblical preaching. How do the Old and New Testaments relate to each other, and how do they connect? We're reminded of the quote that is often attributed to St. Augustine, that the old is in the new revealed, and the new is in the old concealed. And the idea being that we find certain things in the Old Testament which are rather mysterious and uh, concealed in a sense, but then those things are brought out and revealed to us more clearly and more fully in the New Testament. You just have to think, for instance, of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Yes, it's there in the Old Testament. We see it indicated. The language certainly indicates that, but it's not spelled out nearly with the clarity and force that we find, say, in John chapter 1, verses 1 and following, or other New Testament passages. So the Old and New Testament are related. They both come from... God himself. They are both inspired and given to us by the Spirit. The Spirit was guiding and directing and moving those authors, both old and new, to speak the truth, to write the truth, and to give us uh, the truth, the Word of God itself. Now, the Old Testament is certainly uh, full and rich, but it sometimes lacks the clarity and the purpose and the power that we find in the New Testament. There are doctrines and teachings in the Old Testament that you really have to scratch your head over sometimes. Uh, But in the New Testament, we find those things brought out into the open, laid out for us in such a way that they are clearly understandable. Well, in this particular sermon, we're going to deal first with David's prophecy in Psalm 16. Uh, This is the great psalm that deals with the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then we're going to look at the true interpretation of that and how Peter uh, expounds and exegetes Psalm 16. And that leads us to some unavoidable, inescapable conclusions that we draw out at the end of the sermon. 
So as you listen, be thinking about the content, obviously, and what Peter is saying about Christ, but think too about how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together in sweet cooperation and how they uh, complement and serve one another. And as always, I trust that you will be built up and blessed by the preaching of God's word. That's one of the reasons we continue to do this podcast, so that God's word might come to your heart and soul and bring spiritual blessing with it. May you enjoy the Lord even as you listen to his holy word. I would invite you to turn in the scriptures this morning to Psalm 16. Found on page 558 in our Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. Amit Cam of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever." Now we turn to Acts chapter 2, continuing our study of Peter's great Pentecost sermon. This morning we are looking at verses 25 through 32. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses." pray and ask God's blessing. Father, thank you for your word and for your servant, Peter. And Lord, we thank you that the Spirit, through the work of Luke, has recorded these things for us, preserved them, and brought them down to us this day. And we thank you that your Spirit is now our teacher and our guide. Open our eyes and our hearts to your word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a great temptation for many Christians these days to read the Bible on autopilot. This temptation is especially strong for experienced Christians who have read the Bible through many times over. You've seen this before, you've got an idea that you know what it means. And so you disengage the little gray cells from any further serious inquiry. Perhaps you've heard that specific passage preached on by trusted ministers in the past. So your mind is made up. You obviously know what this passage teaches. There's no need for any further reflection. We can just put it on autopilot. And if someone is so bold as to suggest a different understanding of the text, well, then you have to reject it out of hand. Oh, don't bother me with your arguments, young man. I already know what this text means. And this is how traditional interpretations get cemented in place, never again to be moved. But what if I were to tell you that you've misunderstood a particular psalm, a psalm that you've known and loved for many decades. Would you be offended at me for saying this? Would you harumph at me? But what if I could prove that you've misread the beloved passage? Would you even listen to my proofs Would you humbly consider that perhaps you've been wrong all along? Well, this is the task of Peter as he tackles this very thing in our passage here this morning, trying to convince thousands of pious Jews that they've actually misunderstood Psalm 16. Indeed, The Church of the Old Covenant had misunderstood that passage for many centuries, and I doubt not that many people alive today really, really don't grasp what Psalm 16 is saying. So this morning, as we look at our text, I want to first consider David's prophecy. Then we're going to look at the true interpretation, and finally, a further truth. As Peter continues his sermon on Pentecost morning, he quotes extensively from Psalm 16. 
And specifically, he recites verses 8 through 11 of that psalm in order to begin showing them their misunderstanding and how it bears on the gospel. Now, in reading those verses, I must admit that the misunderstanding is completely understandable. I know how they arrive at their erroneous conclusions. It's really not that hard to see. In this section, David refers to the Lord, and then to he, and to you. And that would most obviously mean to God, to God the Father. And that's not where the problem arises. On the other hand, David also says, I saw the Lord always in my presence. And that would seem to be clearly autobiographical. David's talking about himself. And then he uses the personal pronouns I, me, and my seven times in these verses. And those would most clearly and obviously refer to King David himself. And even when he speaks of your Holy One, well, you could assume that David was the anointed king of Israel, and so that term or that title refers to David himself. And so the conclusion is then drawn that this is essentially a conversation about the Lord and King David and their relationship to one another. And it all seems to logically fit. It falls into place. But there is a problem that the astute reader might possibly spot, and it involves the words that are found in verse 27 of our text. Specifically, it is, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, taken at face value, that would seem to say that David's soul was not abandoned to Hades or the grave and that David's body would not undergo decay in the grave. So our astute reader asks himself, can this really be true of David? Could David claim prophetically these blessings for himself? Was David really talking about himself here? Well, Peter picks up this very issue and amplifies the problem in the next verse, where he states, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Apparently, the tomb of David in Jerusalem was a well-known spot, and there was no reasonable doubt about who was buried in David's tomb. Now, in America, we ask, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Grant. <laughs> who's buried in King David's tomb? David. That's not rocket science. There's no mystery there. That's King David's tomb. His body is in that tomb. And so the logic runs something like this. We all know that King David is dead and buried, and he remains in his tomb. 
And so Psalm 16 cannot be talking about David, whose body was abandoned to the grave, whose body has undergone decay. So you've been wrong to assume that this was an autobiographical psalm about David. While that is entirely understandable, it simply cannot square with the facts. You cannot take those statements in verse 27 seriously in light of David's tomb. So we have to come to the conclusion they've read it wrong all along. And even today, people will read this psalm and say, that's a beautiful psalm. What a, what a heartwarming message it contains. It's not about David. Never was. Well, even more definitive is Peter's true interpretation, which he then expounds in verse 31 of our text. And there he clearly connects the resurrection of Jesus Christ to these verses. David was looking ahead and speaking prophetically of the resurrection of Jesus when he said that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. So here is the truth. This is a messianic psalm speaking of Christ, not an autobiographical psalm speaking of David. You see, here's where our interest begins to be heightened. With all due respect, who really cares about King David and what happened to his body 3,000 years ago? I mean, it's interesting. He was a remarkable man. He was one of the best kings of Israel. But what does it matter? Who cares? Did David save us? From eternal damnation? No, he didn't. But if this is talking about Christ, now we are intensely interested. We're talking about our Savior here. We're talking about the Redeemer who has died and risen to save us from hell. That matters. Not just for now, but for eternity. And while we do respect King David, I, I love King David. He's just not in the same plane as the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, that's the core of the gospel that Peter is preaching, and it's the core of the gospel that we believe. Our whole theology is Christocentric, not David-centered. And so because this is a messianic psalm, suddenly our antenna are up. We are locked in. This is really fascinating. So how are we to properly read this psalm, Psalm 16? Well, it begins with affirming what has already been affirmed that the Lord, he, and him all do refer to God the Father. And as I said, there's no problem there. There's no change that is needed. 
But when it comes to the me, my, and I references, those are speaking about Christ rather than David. And it really is Christ speaking through the mouth of David, his servant. So by the Spirit, Christ is prophesying his own resurrection from the dead. And you can see this from the psalm if you look at it through this grid. In verse 26b, we find the words, Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. That is Christ. Christ speaking about his own flesh living in hope by virtue of the resurrection from the dead. And then in verse 27a, he says, Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. And that means that the Father would not abandon Christ's soul to Hades or to the grave. And then in the same verse, the Father will neither allow his Holy One, Christ the Son, to undergo decay. And that means that Jesus' body, resting in the grave for those three days, did not decay. The Father kept the Son's body from going through the normal process of decomposition. From all that I have read and heard, the decay of the human body begins immediately at death. Very quickly, the deterioration of that dead body becomes evident and obvious. And if it is left under normal conditions, that dead corpse will putrefy within just a few days. That's why the disciples were so reluctant for Jesus to open the mouth of Lazarus' tomb. They assumed the stench of death would be overwhelming and overpowering. And yet in Jesus' case, there is a divine preservation that kept his physical body from decaying even in the slightest way. And then finally, the statement of verse 28 is also prophetic. You have made known to me the ways of life. Those paths of life took Jesus out of the tomb and into contact with his disciples after his resurrection. It took him down the road to Emmaus where he encountered and talked with those two disciples. It took him back to the upper room where the eleven were gathered. And as he was on the earth for those 40 days before his ascension, he appeared to many, even to 500 at one time. And then he ascended into heaven and came to his Father victorious. The paths of life made known to the resurrected Jesus. And so you see, this is a clear prophecy of the resurrection of Christ from the dead on the third day. A prophecy which was declared by David and recorded roughly 1,000 years before these events happened. Well, not to be missed, though, are the triumphant emotions of the resurrected Christ. 
Because he saw the Lord always in his presence, and because the Lord was always at Jesus' right hand, the Messiah would not and could not be shaken. His situation was certain and sure and unshakable. And for this reason, the Messiah's heart was glad and his tongue exulted. He could joyfully praise and worship his father for upholding him and for raising him from the dead. And this emotion is again echoed in verse 28b. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. And so this picture that we see here is thrilling beyond description. The risen, victorious Son of God, full of gladness, overflowing with celebration at his great victory over Satan and hell and death and the grave. He is the exalted, joyful, glad Christ. Many years ago, I was given a gift membership in a group that was called the Society of Happy Christians, or it was something to that effect. This was a long time ago. And their promotional material had a picture of Jesus and his mouth was open in laughter. Now, I'm sure you know that I am no fan of pictures of Jesus. The second commandment rules that out, in my opinion. And I also don't believe that there is any shred of scriptural proof that Jesus was a jokester. But I do think that it is beyond any debate that Jesus was and is and ever will be the happiest and most joyful man who has ever lived. His capacity for gladness was infinite, and it was fully utilized so that he is able to rejoice beyond what any of his human followers ever could do. And yet we are meant to share in his joy and to experience, in a measure, the same joy that Jesus felt. In John 15, Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now think about that. That my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. He is sharing the joy. Back in England in the 1800s, when something good and happy would happen to someone, their friends would often say, I give you joy. It's a sharing of joy. And that's what Jesus does to us, his people. He gives us joy. He shares his joy. He wants us to have fullness of joy. So we should not think of our resurrected Savior as a sourpuss, a sad sack. He doesn't go around complaining and moping and moaning about everything. He is full of gladness, 
because he has risen from the dead. The victory is secured. He is marching to glory. And he is subduing his enemies under his feet as he goes. And he is preparing something for us which is so unimaginably good and joyful and happy that it would blow our brains apart if we were to know it now here. When we are glorified and when we are with him in the new heavens and the new earth, we are going to experience something which we cannot even begin to conceive right now. Now think of your happiest days. Think of your most joyful moments. I was full of joy this morning when I looked down in my incubator and I have 12 chicks that have hatched and another four are working and I'm finally having some success. And those chicks, those day-old chicks are just so cute. That makes me happy. That, that cheers the heart of a chicken farmer. Well, what's your best day? Maybe you were out in the golf course and you got a hole in one. Maybe your team won the championship finally after many years of frustration. Maybe it's a, a relationship or a friendship that is just so sweet and special to you. What is your best, happiest day? Multiply that by 10,000 and you still don't get close to the joy Christ has, which you will experience in glory. I think there's a fairly common idea that floats around the Christian world that to be a believer in Christ... It's just kind of like misery because you have to obey all these rules and you don't get to have any fun and everybody else is doing well in life and you're kind of schlepping along. You say, boy, it's, it's just tough and miserable to be a Christian. Well, that's really not true. That's Satan's version of Christianity. Jesus' version is joy, gladness. Even to the point that we can say we rejoice in our suffering because we know that God even uses hardship for our good and for his glory. You see, the Christian life is to be one of unbounded, unfettered joy. And it's all tied back to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, if he had stayed in that tomb, if people could say, I can confidently declare to you that King David and Jesus were both dead in the tomb and they're still there today, then we would be really sorry people. But you see, our Savior has risen. And that brings us this joy that Jesus clearly had as he was full of gladness. Well, I think that we could stop here and be well satisfied with what we have seen so far. But this is not where Peter stops in his preaching. He has one other thing to call to our attention, and that is what he says there in verse 30. And so... Because he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. 
Well, here Peter is referencing two psalms and the promises of the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7. And from Psalm 132, verse 11, and Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, we find this statement. God has sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And this promise is directly in line with the promises that God gave to David when he made the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. One of David's descendants, one of David's sons, would perpetually sit upon the throne of his father. And what this tells us is that this joyful risen Savior is also the King of glory. He is the King of the saints. He is the King of the nations. King of kings and Lord of lords is his rightful title. He is seated upon his throne and he rules and reigns from heaven above. His program is to bring all of his enemies under his feet. To subdue all of the opposition to his glorious majesty. And he is doing that right now. And he will continue to do so until all of those enemies of Christ are subdued. And at that time, when he has subdued his enemies under his feet, he will then deal with the last and greatest enemy, even with death itself. When he returns to the earth and calls the dead from their graves then death will be despoiled of all its trophies. Death will be destroyed, its power broken forever. So this Savior, whom we worship, is a great and glorious King, which only enhances His majesty in our eyes. He is not some poor, forgotten nobody, He's the king of glory. He's the one who is holy and righteous, before whom the angels cover their faces, before whom demons tremble and quail. So Peter's sermon to this point has several unavoidable and inescapable conclusions that we would do well to take to heart. And the first of those is that the Old Testament not only prophesied the coming of Christ, but also his death and his resurrection from the dead. Now we can multiply the number of passages that speak about the incarnation, about his birth and his coming to earth. But there's also many, many passages which speak of his death upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Perhaps the most famous of those would be Isaiah 53. As you have time and opportunity this afternoon, open up Isaiah 53 and read it, looking for Christ, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. It's all there. So the resurrection of Jesus is really all over the Old Testament for those who have eyes to see it. But it's also the case that this victorious Savior is our King. He is your King. 
and he is my king. As our king, he rules over and he defends us. He subdues our hearts to his rule and to his reign. And we do best when we bow the knee to our liege Lord and when we confess him as Lord, as our king. And further still, we are blessed as we joyfully submit to his rule in our lives. His word is our law, and we must yield our hearts in submission to his will. This is really the dividing line between a formalistic view of Christianity, formalism, ceremonialism, and real Christianity. And let me tease that out for you just a minute. Formalism says this. I'll have my name on a church roll somewhere. I'll go to services from time to time. I'll be involved, but not too involved, because that would be crazy. I'll take the Lord's Supper when it is offered. I will do everything I can to play the part of a good Christian. I'll make sure that the appearances can pass muster because I'll do the right things. And I'll feel contented with myself. Why? Because I go to church occasionally. Because I can say the Apostles' Creed, pray the Lord's Prayer. Because I'll take the Lord's Supper when it is offered to me. Because I have a baptism certificate and my name is on a church roll somewhere or other. Now, to all outward appearances, that seems great. But on this other side is the heart that bows before the throne of Jesus and says, You are my Lord and my King. You saved me. And I am so deeply grateful, I want to obey you out of my gratitude toward you. So, Lord, here is my heart. I offer it to you promptly and sincerely. Tell me what I should do, and I will do it, because you desire it. You see, this other approach is not about outward appearances. It's not about forms. It's not about doing the right thing and looking good, seeing and being seen in the right places and the right times. It's about a heart submissive to the God of heaven. It's a heart that is yielded in obedience and devotion to the Christ who saved me through his death on the cross. And I fear that many, many churches in our day are filled with formalists who are going through the motions, who are playing at Christianity, but their hearts are not submitted to God. And they don't care about His will or obeying His word because they're nice 
Christian people who are doing the right thing. Now, if your heart is yielded to God, you will do certain things. Sure, you'll be in church. Sure, you'll take the Lord's Supper. Sure, you'll have your name on a membership roll. All of those things will be true. But you see, that's not the point. You're not playing at being a Christian. You are a Christian because a Christian's heart is submitted to God. It's not playing at religion. I had a family member tell me just yesterday that everybody has to have some religion in their life. And with all due respect to that family member, it is just so wrong to say, I need a religious component. No, we don't need a religious component. We need a heart submissive to the God who has saved us for himself. A heart that loves God with heart, soul, strength, and mind. Because of what God has done for us in and through Christ. So David would tell us, Peter tells us, Scripture tells us, Jesus is your king. His word is your law. Are you submissive to him and his word? Will you obey him? out of gratitude and thanks to God. And that's what we're called to. Let us not be a church full of formal Christians. Christians who can check all the boxes, but have no heart for the Word of God and doing what our God desires of us. Let us be a church full of Believers who love God and say, Your word is my law. I want to do what you tell me I ought to do. And so this psalm really has a much greater message to us. We've misunderstood it. We've taken it in the understandable but wrong way is a nice psalm about David and his relationship to God. But instead, it is Christ speaking to us and calling us to real faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it speaks to our hearts and lives. How it leads us to humble submission and holy obedience to you, our God. Lord, keep us from falling prey to the formalistic imitations and counterfeits of Christianity. Help us, Lord, to yield to you fully, completely, sincerely. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.